Uh, but for those of us who've been here before, uh, you're familiar with these series probably that we just did, the head, heart, hands. And the idea behind that is that we get into patterns of dysfunction. So sometimes we blame the other person we're in a, relationship, a dysfunctional relationship with. So we get out of that relationship, we go into another one, and that person's all screwed up. Then we go into this one, that person's all screwed up. But the one consistent in all of these broke down relationships is us. So maybe the problem is us. Like I don't, I don't need Satan to tempt me with sin. Homeboy is attracted to it. I don't need my wife to ruin our marriage. I'm fully capable of ruining our marriage all on my own, right? Like I, I'm the guy who keeps stubbing my own, my own toe on everything in my life. And, and there are certain things about me that I'm constantly trying to work on that never get fixed. And so I'll ask God, God, please help me with this. 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 And I've, it seems like I've been asking God to help me with the same stupid stuff my entire life. And I'm still struggling with the same stupid stuff. Like, how many, how many of you guys are still struggling? Like, everybody here is broken, all right? So let's just get over ourselves a little bit. But we've all got patterns of brokenness in our life. And how many of you guys know what it is that you constantly struggle with on the inside? Raise your hand. You know what, like, your pet sin is, right? That pet dark, like that, that dark room in your house, in the house of your life that you know, like, you keep that locked, nobody else goes to it. But you walk by that room often, and you know what's in there. And every once in a while, like, like the little the little monsters from that room get out and run havoc in your life and you keep trying to push them back. Like, how do, how do we get rid of that room? And, and so we said that, that, that there's a pattern, there's a way that God designed us to work that we need to be aware of. And that is that the way that we think affects the how we feel and how we feel determines what we do. And the proof of this is that you've known you shouldn't do this because this was the wrong thing to do, but you felt like doing it. So did you do it? Yes or no? Yeah. I mean, like, I'm constantly doing stuff that I felt like doing that I knew I shouldn't do. Like, some of us, we're in debt, and we know we shouldn't continue to spend frivolously. We know this, but that doesn't mean we're going to stop it because we want it so bad, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? So it's this, this want thing, the heart thing drives the choices that we make. So we said, it's like this never-ending merry-go-round. So then the things that we think shape the way that we feel. The way that we feel determines the choices that we make. And the choices that we make reinforce the things that we think. And it becomes this vicious cycle. So in that series, Head, Heart, Hands, we talked about how to stop that merry-go-round. Whether you can stop it most easily in the things that you think about, whether or not you guard your heart or the choices that you make, you need to do something. So we talked about that in that series, and I'm not going to rehash everything that we talked about in, in, this, in this series right now. But what we're doing in this Five Lies series is we're going over five lies that we've been telling ourselves, and we're applying the things that we learned in the Head, Heart, Hand series to those five lies. So we're giving ourselves practice on actually using the lessons from head, heart, hands, and we're doing practice on these five things that we've chosen to believe that aren't true. So last week we talked about the lie that this is just the way you are and you can't change. Now we said that that, that was partially true, but partially false. The part that's true is you can't change it. If you could fix the most broken places in your life, you wouldn't need Jesus. Like, you wouldn't need God. You're all set. But we can't fix those untouchable areas, those scars from our past that continue, those wounds that continue to bleed. I mean, there's things that we can do to band-aid over them and we can address them. But I'm just saying, the residual effects of certain things that have happened to us or things that we've done to others are things that we're incapable of fixing all on our own. The lie is that that's just the way you are. You're just going to have to deal with it. And that's, that's not true. We talked about why that wasn't true last week. And I said that there were two tangible things that you could do to get beyond that lie. 
You could choose every single day. I hope you remember these two. You could choose every single day who you will belong to. I belong to God. I belong to God. I belong to God. I don't belong to this. I don't belong to this. I belong to God. And every time you, we talked about stepping in sin, right? Talking, picturing it like stepping in poop. And the problem is, for some of us, we've gone nose blind to the stink of our sin. It doesn't smell to us anymore. And that's why our shoes are covered in poop. Not literally poop. You know what I'm talking about, right? But like when we step in sin, the goal is here to, to pick up that stick and to wipe it off. Does that make sense? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Anybody awake? Do I have anybody with me? Just checking. All right. Did, did, was there, did we run out of coffee this morning? I don't know if we did, but you're allowed to bring coffee into. The best thing about having churches in a warehouse is it's a warehouse. We don't care what you do to it. Like, we, like, like seriously, five years from now, we can bail on the whole thing, and the new owners have to deal with it. So it's just a warehouse. So kids can run in church here and everything. So bring your coffee in if, if you'd like. But, but sin is like, like when you step in sin, we want it to smell to us like it smells to God. Because when we notice how bad it smells, we'll grab that stick and we'll, we'll, we'll wipe it off is, is what, we, what we talked about. So and then, then I'll say, for the rest of today, I won't step in the sin. God, I belong to you. And God forbid you step in that sin again, what do you do? You stop and you wipe it off your shoes. And if you step in poop three times in a day, you'll stop and you'll wipe it off three times in a day. But if you step in sin three times in a day, you should stop every single time and say, God, I belong to you. The second thing we said is that this sin does not own me. It doesn't control me. Like I'm, like I'm done with this. It is not my master. You have set me free from this. I am not defined by this. And that's a little bit about what we're talking about today, except the lie that we're talking about today is that there are some things that just can't be forgiven. Like, and I don't know that this applies to everybody. But the older you get, the more likely there has been something that you have done that you still carry with you. Guilt, that when you, that the locked room for you is a memory of someone that you've hurt or something that you've done that so violated your own conscience, you can't let it go. And this has come to define who you are. Now, when I was a freshman in college, I was a little bit of a moron. I'm not going to go into any more detail than that because my wife and my son are in this service. So I'm sorry. Well, even if they weren't in here, I'm not going to tell you anyway because it's none of your stinking business. All right? But it, it earned for me, and it wasn't really me. It was my roommate, Danny Crawford. Danny Crawford was the idiot. I was guilty by approximation, right, by proximity. And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it, all right? So Danny was the bad guy, not me. Billie Jane comes to college the next year, and, I, and, and she dated this other moron for a while. His name was whatever. It doesn't matter what his name I'm not going to, like, his nickname was Flex because he was on the basketball team, and every time he'd make a basket, like if this was the home team, like the home stands, then he, on the way back to get back on defense, he would run like this, and he'd go like this. So he's like a completely cool guy. Yeah, he was a, he was a nice guy. Uh, actually, he was a jerk, a total, total. I've got words that are running around in my head to describe him that I'm in church, and I can't use any of them. Um, so she dated that guy for two months, and uh, uh, then, then she, that, that, not like they were steady or anything. She was just going out or steady, like, or going, whatever. Like, that, that, like if they're going together or if they're dating, right, or they're, they're it, okay, it always means different things. So they weren't like, like, exclu you know what, why am I talking about Flex? He's an idiot. All right, all right, today's going to take me to some really dark places, apparently, so uh, then I went on a date, so I asked her, you know, you know after you know, the appropriate mourning period after the death of a relationship, but as soon as that mourning period is over, I'm like, hey, how you doing? Uh, oh, he, yeah, he's such a, come here, come here, he's someone to talk to, ha, 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 
Uh, so we, you know, we, and anyway, so we went out on a date. It was just a date. And so I said, hey, I had a good time tonight. She's like, I, I did too. I said, you know, would it, would, would it be cool? Like, you want to go out again next Friday night? And she said, oh, I can't. And I said, oh, okay. And then I was like, ah, I guess she didn't have that much, that good of a time. And she said, I'm already going on a date with Carl. So, and I probably shouldn't have used his real name, but his real name is Carl. So, because like in the same week, she had two guys, nice guys, I'm sure, Carl, not really. But, but two guys come out and say, hey, you know, I'd like to take you to the movies or whatever. In fact, he may have asked for that Friday night, but I was taking her to the movies and dinner that Friday night. She's like, okay, I mean, like, it doesn't mean anything. She's not going to like, she's not going to do anything with everything. So it's not like she's a, like a girl version of a player or nothing like can I just move on from this? I just, she went on just a date with me. I asked for another one and she said no. She was going on another date with somebody else. She's allowed to do that. She's a grown woman. All right. Can I, wow, I feel like I'm stepping in poop right now and it has nothing to do with, like, okay. So anyway, so after that next date, like, I, I was like, so, so do you have a calendar? Like, what are you doing like the next Friday? I'm like wanting to get like, I'm, I'm not like there's a list. That just, okay. Anyway, Carl, Carl comes over to my dorm room and walks in my room, and here's what Carl says. So Carl, Carl knew me as a freshman. Billy Jane did not know me as a freshman. And so Carl comes into my room, and he goes, Sean, let's be honest. And, and I was like, whatever's coming next, like, <laughs> ain't going to be good, right? Because I don't even like this guy. He's a jerk. He's in my dorm room. He said, let's be honest. You're a joke. That's what he said. And that's when I throat punched him right there. I, okay. <laughs> I didn't because he's bigger than me and I'm a wimp. Um, so I knew, it, like, I've got, I got, like, verbal ninja skills, though. I can talk myself out of fights. So um, anyway, so he says, you're, like, everybody knows that, like, you're, you're only in Bible college to make your parents happy, and you're not going to do anything. Like, you're, like, this is a joke for you, and everybody knows that. If you really cared about Billie Jane, you would leave her alone. Which, okay, now that goes into how insecure he felt, which, t- like, so, and, and that's when I stabbed him right there. And he bled all over my, I'm just kidding, I didn't stab him at all, because he's bigger than me, and I'm afraid of him. But the whole point I'm trying to make is that Carl hung, I was defined for him for the rest of forever by what I had been like or what I had done the previous year. And that had defined me in his mind from then on. And truthfully, what Carl had done had defined him in my mind for the rest of his life as well, because I thought of him as a condescending, arrogant smug, self-righteous, pious, gas bag, phony Christian. Because he is. <laughs> so he came up in my Facebook feed this week. That's why I'm bringing this up. We have a mutual friend that I was close friends with. Uh, she was a girl friend named Carla. Carla's birthday was on Wednesday, and I said, happy birthday, Carla, because we were buddies our freshman year. Carl said happy birthday or something because it said, Carl says, you know, wrote on her, her post too. And I'm like, Car- Carl? <laughs> so in my mind, he's like, like living in a gutter somewhere all alone, and his life is horrible. So I start creeping on his Facebook page. <laughs> oh, get off me, every one of you have creeped on somebody else's Facebook page. You self-righteous, smug, (laughs) condescending, arrogant, pious, gas bag, fake Christians. You've done it too. 
And he's got this wonderful marriage to this girl that I remember him dating our senior year. He's been married to the same girl over 20 years. They have four beautiful daughters who have no idea what a scumbag their dad is. We've got to help those poor girls. I'm just kidding. But he ended up with this phenomenal life. He's doing fantastic. He lives in the same town. He's doing awesome. And then I realized I am guilty of what I've been accusing him of all of these years. Because what he had done wrong and in arrogance and pride had come to define him for me for the rest of our life. In the same way that you are still hanging on to things that you did that you don't do any longer. And these things have come to define you to you for the rest of your life. How can you tell if you are stuck in this lie? You can tell if you are stuck in this lie if you feel like you belong on the island of misfit toys. You feel like you're permanently broken and you don't fit in anywhere. That nobody would like the real you. If you feel that way, you've bought into the lie. You've bought into the lie if you believe that you are unworthy to be used by God. He can't. I've been divorced twice, man. There's, or I've... I'm a former, I'm an alcoholic. I'm an addict. Like, what, what is your brokenness? But the lie you're telling yourself is that you can't be forgiven. The third thing is that you can't see the good things, the blessings in your life because you're so focused on the bad things. You look at everything that bad happens to you in your life as a punishment for God for something you did a long time ago. And you're being punished. In your head, you're being punished. And you can't see any of the good stuff because all you see is the bad stuff. Because that's the only thing you're focused on. You are looking for to be re, you are looking for those negative thoughts to be reinforced. Like you will find what you're looking for. If you're looking for evidence that you're being punished by God, then you will look at a flat tire as punishment from God, not the fact that it, you've gotten to the forty thousand miles that those tires were guaranteed for. Like we look at everything that way. The other way that you can tell is if you keep everybody at arm's length. If you don't let anybody in, because you're afraid that if they knew the real you, they wouldn't love you or they would reject you. So you permanently stiff arm everybody in every relationship. And if any one of those things describe the way you are right now, then you bought into this lie. So we're going to apply the lessons that we learned from head, heart, hands to this lie and see where it takes us. And so there's a first truth I want you to know. The first truth is this. That negative emotions are not bad. It's not bad to feel bad. Like, that's not the enemy. Like, can you imagine a society in which people did not feel bad for doing bad things? Can you imagine how horrible that would be? If there was no remorse, if there was no conviction, if there was no guilt, if nobody's conscience was bothered because of the bad things that they've done? It'd be like a person who physically doesn't feel any pain. Those people do not live healthy lives. Like, they will injure themselves and not know that, like, there's actually a disease where people can't feel pain. And while that sounds good, it is a horrible thing for them because pain is good. Pain tells you when your appendix is about to erupt, get your butt to the hospital. Anybody have an appendectomy? Just four of us? All right. I'm just saying, that pain, it stunk, but that was good for us to feel that pain. That was a horrible pain. It told us we need to get this taken care of. That's what guilt is. To our heart. Guilt says what you did, it's indicator to us that we've done something wrong. And that is good. 
but only if it leads us in the right direction. So the question isn't, do I feel bad and should I feel bad? The question is, what does feeling bad lead me to do? Because some of us do not have an appropriate response to guilt. So I guess that's the question. And by the way, I think there's a difference between guilt and conviction. And, and while the words are often used interchangeably, I like the way that my dad talks about it. He says that uh, conviction is from God and leads us to repentance. Guilt is what I feel after I've repented. God's forgiven me and I won't let it go. And that's not from God. We're going to get to that in, in just a minute also. But some of us, when we feel bad, we just bury it. We ignore it. We avoid that person. We run away from the problem. We haven't gone back to the family reunion because we're avoiding the person that we feel bad for hurting. That's, that's, that's not healthy. So feeling guilt when we've done something wrong is really good because it's an alarm in our heart that tells us our behavior needs to change. You get what I'm saying? But if what the behavior that you change is avoiding the person, that is not healthy. Sometimes we blame it on others. I've done this in my own relationship with my wife. I felt guilty because I was a jerk of a husband, but then I rationalized it by saying she was a jerk of a wife first, so I had a right to be a jerk of a husband back. Anybody feel me in this? Don't raise your hand. My wife, why am I doing this? She's like, I am, Billy, I am so sorry. I really wish you had come to the second service today, not this one. Um, we blame it on others, or we beat ourselves up over it. Like, you constantly bring that up, that like, you, 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 won't, you won't let it go. You keep reminding yourself of how horrible a person that you are, and you won't let yourself move beyond this. And so you're wallowing in your guilt. You're, you've wallowed, right? And you're constantly, like, throwing it up in your own face. But guilt is good if it leads us to the person who can take the guilt away. That's the good thing. Discipline, like I, I think, I think there's, there's healthy discipline and, and I think that there's abuse. And the mode is, is, less, is less of the issue than the intent is. If, if you, dis and, and by the way, if, like if, if you discipline your children because they, they embarrassed you, it doesn't matter what kind of a, a discipline it is, even if it's a timeout, you've taught them that if you embarrass me, I don't want you around me. So, I mean, there's, that's abuse. You see what I'm saying? So, it has nothing to do with the form of discipline. It has everything to do with the intent. So, if, if, you, if you're disciplining them or if you were disciplined because, and the lesson that you, like, and they, you got disciplined every time you embarrassed them or you made them mad or your kids made you mad, so you got to get them back now because you're angry. That's abuse. And I'm not, like, I, look, we don't, the goal of discipline is to teach a child that there are negative consequences for bad behavior. That's just good parenting. You get what I'm saying? It's so like there's, there's guilt that we beat ourselves. That's abuse. But if the guilt leads us to the person who can take away the abuse, excuse me, the, the guilt, that's healthy. This is in Leviticus chapter 5. This is in the Torah. So if you've got your Bible, go to Leviticus chapter 5. In Leviticus chapter 5, here's what it says in verse 5 and 6. Um, when you become aware of your guilt in any of this, these ways, when you, so like, the, like guilt is not the bad thing. Guilt is good if it leads us somewhere. So he says, when you become aware of your guilt in any of these areas, in any of these ways, you must what? Confess your sins. Then you must bring to the Lord as the penalty for your sin a female from the flock, either a sheep or a goat. This is a sin offering with which the priest will purify you from your sin, making you right with the Lord. He said, here's what guilt is supposed to do. God's given us that the emotional capacity for guilt 
so that it leads us to a place of repentance. When I feel guilty for what I've done, God says, I want you to use that guilt to drive you not away from that person, not to put it down. What I want you to do is I want you to let that push you towards me. I want you to confess your guilt. I want you to admit that it was wrong. I want you to own responsibility for your share of this dysfunction. I, I can't apologize for what my wife's done. I can only apologize for what I've done, both to her and to God. God, I've, like even Joseph, when he was tempted to sin against others, he said, how can I sin against your husband and against you? Like all sins ultimately are a rebellion against the, the authority of God. God is the source of all that is good. When we rebel against God as good, we find ourselves doing all that is bad. He says, when you feel guilty for doing wrong, I want you to confess it. And I want you to apply the sacrifice of that innocent offering to pay off your guilt so that I don't have to hold this against you any longer. Now, we know that the lamb, before the time of Jesus, everybody who believed that God would someday show up in human history and offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins would temporarily offer as a sacrifice, sacrificial payment for their sins a lamb, a bull, or a goat, or if they were poor, the Bible says that they could offer the life of a turtle dove. So, I mean, there wasn't like a, it wasn't about the price. It was the fact that they were placing their faith and trust in God to forgive them, uh, their sins being taken away by, by the sacrifice of this innocent. But it's, it's life for life, blood for blood. And a lamb isn't equal to a human being, so it was only a temporary sacrifice. But Jesus, God himself who shows up in human history and offers his life as a sacrifice, dude, there's no comparison between Jesus and all of humanity. So his death, burial, and resurrection pays off the guilt for all of mankind, at least those who will confess that sin, repent of it, and begin following him. So that's what he says. Listen, what I want you to do is I want you to repent of your sin. And accept the offering I made for your, that I provided for your sin. There's a story of a, a family that was a settlers, and they were, they were going across the prairie of Kansas, and they came over a hill, and they saw this gigantic uh, uh, brush fire uh, in, in the plains of, of the, the, the middle part of America, and the winds were blowing it right toward them, and they, they were going to, like, the, their caravan, everybody was going to die. They're in, they're in wooden wagons with, with Conestoga, Conestoga wagons. I, I can't believe I pulled that word up from, like, fourth grade probably, but um, Conestoga wagons, and, and so they, they were going to be engulfed in these flames and, they, and then they, they were going to die. And so the, one of the dads are of, of the caravan, he gets out of his wagon and he runs to the back and he sets the field on fire behind him. And the winds that were blowing this huge inferno their way then began to blow the, the, the flames behind them that way. And as the flames began to push away from them, they moved the entire caravan back onto the place, the part of the land that was already burnt. And the guy's daughter looked up and said, Daddy, are you sure we're going to be safe? Yeah. How do you know? Because we're standing where it it has already been burnt. Martin Luther said this. He said, sin has two places where it may be. Either it may be with you so that it lies upon your neck or upon Christ, the Lamb of God. If now it lies upon your neck, you are lost and without hope. If, however, it lies upon Christ, you are free and you will be saved. I will burn or I stand on the one who was already burned for me. Do you get what I'm saying? Does that make sense? That's what Jesus said, God, the Bible says that guilt is intended to do, is to lead me to a place of repentance and humility. It's to point out that I'm not capable of being the hero of my own heart, the captain of my own soul. God is. That's what guilt is supposed to do. It's supposed to push me to my knees in repentance and humility. God, I accept 
your sacrificial payment for what I've done because I can't pay this off. That's what guilt's supposed to do. So that's the first truth, that my emotions are not bad. It's what my emotions lead me to do that may or may not be bad. The second truth is this, that my past does not define me. Some of us feel that our mistakes will be with us forever. This is going to be a part of me for the rest of my life, and that's not true, and we're going to replace that with biblical truth. Go in your Bible to Jude chapter 1. Jude is the second to the last book of the Bible. It's right before the book of Revelations. It's only one chapter long. This is the only letter that Jude wrote that was included in the scriptures, and Jude was the half-brother of Jesus. For some of you guys, that's flipping you out because you still think Mary's a virgin, but she was only a virgin until Jesus was born. She had a husband named Joseph. She was married to a dude. She didn't stay that way. The Bible, we have the names of five of Jesus' half-brothers. By the way, Jesus had a stepdad. Joseph was his stepdad, wasn't his biological father. But he had half-brothers. And we have the names of five of them. And the Bible says that he had sisters, so there were at least two of them. So Jesus was in a family where he was the oldest of at least eight kids, at least. And it was one of his younger half-brothers who wrote this book, Jude. And here's what Jude wrote in verse 24. He said, now all glory to God who is able to keep me from falling away. What is God's job? Whose job is it to keep me in the family of God? Is that my job or is that God's job? According to the Bible, whose job is it to keep me from falling away from faith? I'm going to read it again because I think I tricked you. Look at it again. Jude 1 verse 24. Now all glory to God, God who is able to keep you from falling away. Who is able to keep me from falling away? God. That's not my job. It's not my job to keep me adopted. That's his job. Did, was, is God surprised that I'm a moron? Yes or no? No. He knew I was a moron when he adopted me into his family. He knew what he was getting. And the thing is, is God loves me exactly like I am. It's just that he loves me too much to leave me as I am. He loves you the same way. He loves you exactly like you are. But he loves you too much to leave you like you are. He's got a plan. He's doing something. And this guilt that we feel, that's part of the plan if it drives us back to him. But you don't have to carry this with you for the rest of your life. This will not always be a part of your identity and the way that you see yourself because it's not how he sees you. Look at the next part of that verse. Now all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence. He will bring me into his presence without a single what? fault. God says, you're broken now, kid, but I'm doing something with you. And someday when you stand before me, you will stand before me as a kid without a single scar. That's how I see you. It's not how we see ourselves. But who judges us? God. He's the one who gets to declare who we are and how we stand before him. Not me. Who in the world do I think I am that I would hold myself to a higher standard than God does? And he says, listen, I'm telling you, it's my job to keep you in my family, and someday you will stand before me without a single fault. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 puts it this way. Verse 9 through 10. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10. For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ. We already talked about that. Jesus took the punishment for us so that we wouldn't have to. He was the one who was torched for us on the cross so that we wouldn't have to be torched on judgment day. All right, through Jesus Christ, he chose to save us through the Lord Jesus Christ. He chose to save us not to pour out his anger on us. I, I, I think sometimes we honestly believe that God's plan is to keep punishing us and punishing us and punishing us and punishing us and punishing us. And that's not the plan at all. The plan is to make us more like Jesus. 
So if anything's happening bad in my life, I do look to see if that's discipline from God. And if it's discipline from God, the moment I repent of that sin, the discipline goes away. Because the point of all healthy discipline is mod behavior modification. I want to teach my kids that if they do something wrong, there's a negative thing that happens. Why? So that when they become an adult and cuss out their boss, they're not shocked when he gets fired, when they get fired. Like a kid who's raised not to know that there's negative consequences for negative behavior is a kid who is dysfunctional and ends up becoming your boss, right? That guy's a jerk. Was not raised well at all. Was never disciplined as a kid. What dad is there who doesn't discipline their kid? It's a dad who doesn't love his kid. That's what he says. That's the whole point. I didn't rescue you and my family so I could pour out punishment on you. Like if there's anything from me in your life, it's only to point out that you're doing something wrong. And as soon as you change, as soon as you repent of that sin, the discipline is gone. So when something bad happens in my life, I do check and consider my heart. Is this discipline from God? I search my heart. Is there any sin in there? Any conviction or guilt over any poop I've stepped in? Is there any poop on my shoe? And if there's poop on my shoe, homeboy wipes it off. And if that pain or that discomfort or that unfortunate thing that's happening in my life that's driving me to God really is from God, then it immediately goes away because the point of that was over. Any discipline from God leads me to repentance. Once I repent, the discipline is over. If it stays, then it was never from God in the first place. It's just the consequences of living in a broken and screwed up world. Have you repented of the sin of your past? Yes or no? If the answer is yes, then nothing else that's happened in your life has been punishment from God because he didn't rescue so that he could pour out anger on you. That's what the Bible says. So grab those negative thoughts and replace it with the biblical truth. He did not pour out his anger on us. Verse 10, Christ died for us. He was torched for us so that whether we are dead or alive when he returns, we can live with him forever. That's what this is about. It's about God's rescue mission for us. He isn't punishing us for our sins because my sins have already been punished. Who took the punishment for my sins? Jesus took the punishment for my sins. It's over. He was scorched that I don't have to. This, isn't from, this is just a consequence of living in a broken and fallen down world. But I'm not going to keep punishing myself for it either. Because somebody was already punished for the stupid things I've done. And truthfully, when I recognize the brokenness of my life or my past, that actually makes me more grateful to God. Because I recognize how much he paid for. The third truth is this. My pain doesn't own me. It doesn't own me. It can't control me unless I let it control me. And I want to say this for some of you guys who are angry at people who've hurt you. You can have revenge or you can have peace, but you can't have both. I'm going to say that again because some of you guys, God brought you here for that. You can have revenge or you can have peace, but you cannot have both. And the reason why it's so hard not to make sure that somebody carries the torch of hate for that person forever is because we're afraid they're going to get away with it. That's what we're afraid of. What they did was so evil and nobody knows about it. And we're going to hate them forever because to let them off the hook means in our mind that they're off the hook for good. Where's the justice in that? So we won't let ourselves let go of the hate that we carry. Because who will carry it for us? Romans chapter 12 gives us the answer to that question. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. 
says this, never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with who? Everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Well, what about what they did? What about what they did? What about them? It's not fair. Like, they're going to get away with it. Leave that to the righteous what of God? What does God have? What does God have? God has anger. He knows what they did. Where was God? He saw it happen. He's keeping score. Who's more capable of making sure they get theirs? You or God? All right? But if you do it, you're getting in his way. You're his kid. You're standing between him and his righteous anger against that person. And you're holding the torch in between God and them. And God's not going to do that while you're in the way. While you're his kid, he loves you. But he says, you get out of the way. You let that go. I'll give you peace and I'll bring fury on them. I will take care of this. I am more angry at what they've done to you than you are at what they did to you. I got this. Get out of the way. Get out of the way. Get out of the way. I'll get this. But you got to move, kid. Get out of the way. I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. That's the truth. That's the promise I hang on to that helps me let go of the lie. So I grab these horrible thoughts as they come in, and I replace them with something that is true, and that allows me to feel something I didn't feel before, gratitude instead of bitterness. And that gratitude moves me to make different choices. So I'm going to give you four action steps, and I'm going to leave you with this. Four action steps. The first one is this, is pray. Pray. What do I pray? God, forgive me. That's what I pray. How to live a consistently healthy life. How to get beyond this lie of believing that you can never be forgiven. You pray. God, forgive me. You confess your sins. God, forgive me. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, if we confess, some of you guys need to memorize that verse, and every time you feel like God can't forgive you, you quote this verse to yourself. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to clean us from all of the guilt that associates with it. That's what God does. Now, either God has forgiven you when you confessed, or he's a liar. There's nothing in between. Because he said he would. So either he did, or he's a liar. And if he's a liar, he's not God. So the only rational conclusion is that when I humbled myself and accepted that Jesus was the prairie that was torched so that my wagon wouldn't have to be, and when I move into that relationship, Jesus, forgive me, save me, help me to follow you. Instantly, my debt was paid off. That's what God said he would do. And every time I doubt that, I'm accusing him of lying to me. I don't think we ought to be that fresh. Not to him. That's the first thing you need to do is pray. Second thing you need to do is this. You need to fill your mind with God's word. Psalm 119 Verse, 19, uh, verse 11 says this, I have hid your word in my heart so that I will not keep sinning against you. You want to get victory over sin? Then you need to hide God's word in your heart. You need to memorize it. I was plagued by fear. It ruined my life as a middle schooler. My dad taught me John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives do I give unto you. So let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. 
Then it goes into the other verses. You believe in God, believe also in me. And I'm not going to memorize. But like, I had to quote that scripture in order to, to refute this sin. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus resi resisted evil in his heart by memorizing and quoting scripture. And if Jesus had to fight off the attacks of self-doubt, fear, and sin by memorizing scripture, who are you and I to think that we can do any better without memorizing scripture? If the only word of God you get is like if the only healthy meal you ate was one meal on Sunday morning during a whole week, you're going to live a very unhealthy life. And truthfully, if the only amount of God's word you get is when I spoon feed it to you on Sunday mornings, you are going to stay a broke down, defeated, discouraged person. You need to eat healthy every day. You need to just Google verses in the Bible that deal with what? Bible verses that deal with anger, Bible verses that deal with hate, Bible verses that deal with abuse, Bible verses that deal with lust, Bible verses that, that, that deal with self-pity or depression or discouragement or, or pride or greed or like, like Bible verses that deal with. Google it. You will find, like, that's how I found Psalm chapter 32, verse 1 through 11, and I'm memorizing it right now. And, and I just wrote it down on Friday, and so I've got Psalm 32 right here. And it's not the whole chapter. What I did was I wrote down the first letter of every word in the chapter. Does that make sense? You know what I'm saying? The first letter of every word? It's crazy. Read the verse one time, just one time, then write down the first letter of every word, and then don't read the Bible again. Just look at the first letter, and your brain will actually help you say every single, ver every single word in that verse. Like that's, It's the easiest way to memorize for rote memorization that I've found. So I just have the first five verses of, of I, have, I have all 11 on the back half, but on the top half right here, it's just the five verses, and it's just the first letter of every verse. And I'm carrying this passage of scripture with me because this is what I want to memorize. And it says, uh, oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those who, uh, who, who, whose record the Lord has, see, I got, hang on, I had to remember it, whose record the Lord has cleansed of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Uh, when, I, when I refuse to confess my sins, my bone wastes away, and, and, uh, all, and I groan all day long. Uh, day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. Um, my strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sin to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me, and now my guilt is gone. So every time I feel that crap coming back into my heart, I'm going to say to myself, finally, I confessed all my sin to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt from you, and you forgave me. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me, and now my guilt is gone. And when it comes back up, I'm going to quote to myself, Finally, I confessed all my sin to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me, and all my guilt is gone. You know how I kick sin's butt in my own heart? I fight it with Scripture. This works. You got to do the hard work of hard work. You want to get healthy? You actually have to exercise and put the cotton candy down. You want to spiritually grow up? You've got to do the hard work of spiritual exercise and put the crap down. You don't change your eating habits, you stay unhealthy. You don't change your spiritual habits, you stay 
broken. God's done his job. Ball's in your court. That's it. You got work to do. You need to pray and you need to confess. You need to put God's word in your heart. And you need to believe that God ain't lying to you. You need to accept what he has to say is true. The last thing I'll give you is this. Focus on where you're going, not what you did. When God brings guilt, he's bringing me back to himself. Why? Because he's not done with me. So I'm focused on what God can do with me because of this, not why I did it in the first place. There are things that I've done in my past that led my heart to certain places that I've now turned over to God and he's healed me from, which has given me the ability to help other people who are still struggling. And that's 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our sorrows so that we are able to comfort others in the middle of their sorrows. The whole reason why God healed me from the crap in my past is so I could help bring healing to other people. So I focus on where I'm going, not what I did. You need to stop focusing on what you did and focus on what God wants to do in spite of it. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful that you didn't rescue me from my sin just to take me to heaven. That wasn't the whole point. The whole point isn't just to take me to heaven when I die. The whole point is for me to live in relationship with you and become like Jesus. To live, love, give, and serve the way he lived, love, gave, and served. There's a role you play and there's a role I play. If I resist your Holy Spirit drawing me towards repentance, it ain't going to happen. There are people in this room, God, who think that they can fix themselves. They even believe you died on the cross, that you rose from the dead, but they think they can be good enough to make it. They can, they can fix their heart. They're the captain of their soul. God, help us to stop trying to fix everything and simply yield. Help us to confess that we have sinned against you. Help us to get on that knee before you, to humble ourselves and admit, God, I need you to forgive me for what I've done. I can't atone for this. I can't amend for this. I'm broken, permanently damaged without you. I'm asking you, Jesus, to give me a new heart. Can you make that your prayer?